There we go. Um, let me lead us in prayer as we begin and ask for God to help us in how to deal with this passage. Father, we pray this morning that you would guard us from creating you in our image. And would you stretch our understanding of who you are and what you're like. Give us soft hearts, we pray. Open our ears that we might hear what it is you're saying. In Jesus' name, Amen. If I had a title for this morning's talk, it would be, But What About? But what about this? But what about this? But what about this? Because questions rise. It seems to me we've got a number of elephants in the room, um, not just in judges generally, but perhaps especially in this passage. And so for right or wrong, I'm going to take a bit of time this morning um, to have a crack at answering some of those questions, dealing with some of those elephants in the room that have been kind of plodding along week by week for the last couple of weeks. I have no doubt at all that this won't satisfy all of you, but I hope it might help a bit. Before we get into Judges 4, though, remember the story so far is that right back at the start of the Bible, God promised a man called Abraham that he would give him a land, a people and a land, and a blessing, and, and eventually they arrived there. But as they arrive in the land, there are various problems. Number one, that there are Canaanites already living in the land. What's the plan with them? And this next problem that we've seen week on week, and as Jill was reminding us, this repeating cycle of God's people forgetting the Lord, being defeated by their enemies, remembering the Lord, he raises up a rescuer, and then there's peace for a time, and then you repeat, and you repeat, and you repeat. But even those two problems, I would think, will raise for us issues. The but what about? So my first one is, but what about all the blood and death? But what about all the blood and death? It feels relatively far from our relatively comfortable Western lives. What do we make of all these battles going on? Does God condone that? Is God okay with that? Well, first of all, I want to zoom up a bit, just 20,000 feet or so, and just consider Canaan itself. What do we know of the Canaanites? Our problem can be, basically, we think people are generally good, basically good, pretty neutral. And so we have in mind the inhabitants of Canaan sitting on land, minding their own business, doing nobody any harm at all, and lo and behold, they unjustly get booted by the Israelites, removed from their house. Did they deserve that? That doesn't seem very fair. But here's the thing, or at least two things. That doesn't quite work. Number one, the Canaanite religion was horrific. They worshipped, as we've read already, Baal and Asherah. And as far as we can tell, Worship of Baal and Asherah included things such as incest, bestiality, child sacrifice, illicit sex, and violence. The Canaanites weren't neutral. That was how they worshipped their gods. Canaan was a horrible place. And of course, who suffers most in societies like that? It's still the same today. It's the weak and the vulnerable. It's those who can be abused, those who are at the bottom of the pile. Those who are disregarded. Which means in somewhere like Leviticus 18, a bit further back, the land of Canaan is described as vomiting out its inhabitants because it's unclean, it's disgusting, it's unpalatable. They were not neutral. And so as God removes the Canaanites, 
This is a judicial act. He waited until their sins had piled up so much that he couldn't wait any longer and he removed them. There's one thing just to bear in mind. The other is actually the language that's used um, is at times, I think, quite complicated. There are similar passages as well um, from this era and this time. And so a little bit of kind of word about words. What do I mean by that? When Joshua 10 verse 40, for example, just before Judges, so it goes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. Joshua 10 verse 40, you read this, you read, so Joshua subdued the whole region, including the hill country, the Negev, the western, the western foothills and the mountain slopes, together with all their kings. He left no survivors. He totally destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. And you read that, and you might think, well, everyone's dead. They've all gone. But then you get to Judges, and they're clearly not. They are clearly still there. There are still Canaanites in the land. There are still Canaanites in that place. And as God has said, like moths around a candle, it's remarkably easy for his people to run after other gods again. So you read Joshua 10, verse 40, and we think, well, is Joshua lying? Is he exaggerating a bit and hoping nobody notices? Did he think he had done a good job and just wasn't really into kind of complete a finisher? I think the best answer actually is that there's a sort of military rhetoric going on being used at this point. So you might give a presentation at work and someone says to you, you know, you totally smashed it. What they mean by that is you don't have to replace your laptop. It means you did a really, really good job. It's the language used, it's a, it's a metaphor for doing a really good job. It's a figure of speech, it's a good thing. And so in saying that they were totally destroyed, that might not actually mean that they were totally destroyed. It may mean that you just thoroughly beat them. That is a similar line of thought in Deuteronomy 7. So this comes up again and again in the first, um, particularly Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Again and again, so Deuteronomy 7 is a key passage for this whole idea. Um, I was at a conference a while ago and they were talking about this and it was fascinating. In Deuteronomy 7 it says you're to totally wipe them out. Okay, so you're to totally wipe them out at the start of the passage. Then at the end of the passage, or the next verse in fact, it says, well don't let your kids intermarry with them. And don't worship their gods. And don't bow down to their idols. And you go, well how do those two work? Because we've just been told we're to totally wipe them out. Of course we can't intermarry with their kids because they, we can't worship their, how does that work? And it seems to me that the emphasis is far less about destroying a people and far more about destroying idols and false worship. That seems to be more of what's going on in these places, getting rid of false worship. And why does false worship matter so much? It's not that God is needy and he needs more and more people bound to him to stroke his fragile ego. But actually it's because his plan for the nations were that his people would be wholly indifferent so that the world would see what he is like through them. And if they are constantly running after these gods that they leave in the lands, then they get distracted and diverted. And as we see in Judges, they run after other gods, they forget him. And it's a downward spiral again and again. His plan is that his people will be distinct and different and reveal to the world something of what he is like. So there's a little bit of a sort of starter for ten in terms of what about all the blood and the death. It's not perhaps quite what we expect it to be. 
but it's still out of the way. It still raises issues for us in the West. Let's jump into Judges 4 for our next, but what about? But what about Deborah and women and Barak? Deborah is something of an anomaly in the book of Judges. Partly because she's a woman. But actually it's not only because she's a woman. She's something of a high point in the book. She alone, amongst all the judges that God raises up, is not a warrior, but she's a godly ruler. So have a look down again at the context in 1 to 3. So we're in Judges chapter 4, verse 1 to 3. And the cycle begins again. Israel turns its back on God again. Israel ends up oppressed again. This time King Jabin, the Canaanites, and he's worse than before. His rule is cruel. He is unpleasant. Sisera is his agent of oppression. He has 900 iron chariots, a.k.a. a large, well-kitted-out army. They are powerful. And then verse 4, let me read it again. Deborah comes onto the scene. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at the time, or judging Israel at the time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. You've got a tree named after that. Amazing. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take with you ten thousand men of Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River, and give him into your hands. So what do you know about her? We know, we know number one, she is a prophet. She speaks the word of God. We see that in action in verse 6. She speaks from the Lord. She is a leader or a judge as well in verse 4. And so verse 5, people would come to her to have their dispute settled. Which means wisdom. Which means she's very different from the other judges. And so where last week Othniel goes to war through verse 10, or Ehud the left-handed makes a plan to assassinate Eglon through verse 16, Deborah? Not so much Deborah. Deborah leads from behind the battlefield with wisdom. And so as one commentator puts it in Judges, she's in a sense the greatest pointer to the monarchy and even to Christ, the one who can bear the government on his shoulders and is called Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, establishing and upholding his kingdom with justice and righteousness. So she's unusual because she's wise. She, she leads with wisdom. But actually she's unusual too because she isn't a warrior, and so she sends for Barak. It is he who will take the troops. It is to him whom the Lord will give victory. And then, we'll come on to the tent peg bit in a minute, but it's neither of them who will have this bloody privilege of removing Sisera, the Canaanite general. There's another question there about Deborah and Barak and all that, and that's in verse 8 to 9. We need to do a little, little bit of sort of technical stuff or show some different options, because I think that matters. Uh, have a look down at verse 8 and 9 with me. So, Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go, but if you don't go with me, I won't go. Certainly I will go with you, said Deborah, but because of the course you are taking, the honour will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. And so you see, Barak's reply to Deborah goes in different ways. Either Barak is seen as a bit of a wuss. It's like, 
Yeah, but if you come and hold my hand, then, then yes, but otherwise I can't manage. There's a lack of faith that's kind of fearful, and I think that's actually why our NIV takes it the way that it does in verse 9. That is, because of your lack of faith, so God will give you, God will not give you the honour of defeating him, but rather it will be a woman in a largely a patriarchal society that would have been a kind of shame or a slur in some sense. But actually, if you've got an ESV and other versions as well, I think probably you can get it in our footnotes. You get it in our footnotes, I'm not sure we do. Um, there's a more optimistic view, and it's not simply because you're lacking in faith, but it's simply, and the Hebrew works in this way, it is simply her being a prophet again. So she's not rebuking him, it's just a statement of fact. Because you do this, then this will happen. This is the course of action, this is the outcome. Which means Barak is far more of a hero than we think which matches more closely in Hebrews 11, because he's treated as a hero in chapter 11. Often we read this and we think, oh, Barak was always. And then Hebrews 11, he's, he's given a big thumbs up and a tick. So what is that? Well, I think it's more that just simply from this course of action, this is what will happen. It's a statement of fact. That seems to make more sense to the text and how the scriptures use it later on as well. Which means Deborah is something of a hero for people. Maybe rightly so, it's a book full of blood, and she brings this level of wisdom, it seems. I'm going to slow down as well and ask a couple of questions in terms of what this episode adds to our understanding of women in leadership, which is a hot topic for many. Um, I think it's a challenging passage for different sides in different ways. A couple of cautions before we go there. Um, there are different Bible passages in different contexts, different issues that will bring different clarity which means that where things can be a bit cloudy here, we should lean on them first. And it's always dangerous as well to read narrative and expect it to be or treat it as something that is normative. That is, just because something happens, that doesn't mean it's the way that it should happen or always happens. But a few thoughts. Some say this is the case, but it seems to me that Deborah is not brought in because of Barak's timidity. I just can't see that in text. We need to let the text speak for itself. She is already a prophet and a judge and a leader. She's already there. It's not that she's kind of dragged in because Barak is a woods. She's already in a form of leadership. And that might be unusual because it was a more patriarchal period. But I'm not sure we can deny that. We'll just call it a, a blip or an anomaly. Having said that, it is striking to me, and some of the commentators say this, that, that she's not a military ruler. She's not a warrior, she's no kind of Joan of Arc. Indeed, she recruits recruit somebody else to do the, the warrior stuff, the battle stuff for her. And so I wonder if there's a sense in which perhaps the, the account challenges us from both sides. On one side, those who might say it's just a blip and she's there because Barak is a wuss, I'm not sure that works. But then on the other side as well, maybe we're not all the same. Everyone does things exactly the same way, but it seems that she leads in a different way from the other judges. I wonder if that's deliberate in some way as well. I don't think that's just there by chance. Maybe we are equal but not equivalent in some sense. Male and female, created in God's image, equal in value and worth and dignity and ability and dominion over creation, and both called to steward, both bringing fruitfulness and flourishing, but with different roles, doing things in different ways, and yet all for his glory. I hope to put some more in hungry notes, um, but we'll see if I'm chicken or not. Um, <laughs> I do pray for us as a leadership team, we're thinking through these things, we're trying to think through how 
best we can reflect some of these ideas. We are discussing and praying and thinking through these issues, so we'd love your, love your wisdom and your prayer on that, too. But the story continues. Um, Sisera escapes on foot. You know, it's the end of the movie, and you think, you look at your watch, and you think, I've got 15 minutes left, that can't just be the credits. And suddenly there's a final twist, and Sisera runs off. And so our next question is, but what about treachery and tent pegs? Oh. It's gruesome, isn't it? There's a huge irony all around. He thinks he's safe. Um, Jabin and Hebar are mates, they're allies, they're friends. He thinks, I'm going to be okay here. Clearly he's not safe at all, and he's lured into sleep, and he never wakes up again. And so Jedra's prophecy back in verse 9 is proved right. He is delivered into the hands of a woman, but it's not. Deborah, it's jailed. The question that some have, though, the thorny issue is, but she's just broken at least two of the Ten Commandments. She lies and she murders. Why is that okay? Is that okay? How can God allow that? How can God use that even? Does it implicate him? Did he want that? Huh. It's a complicated idea in the scriptures. I'm going to take you to Acts chapter 2. I think where you see this pattern particularly clearly. If you want to find it, please do. It's Acts 2 and verse 22. But I will read two or three verses there for us. And try and show you the, the kind of structure and the idea. Hopefully you'll see how that works back then to something like jail and other places as well. In fact, it's all through the scriptures. Peter, preaching at Pentecost. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Is the key bit. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Uh, so much stuff in there. I just want to show you the two threads, though, that we're going to pull apart. The two threads kind of weaving back and forth, and yet we struggle to understand them, but Scripture just says, deal with it. One is that God's sovereign plan from, from eternity past, the second person of the Trinity would take on flesh and come and deal with our sin on the cross. Okay? God is sovereign and in charge. It's always been the plan. But Peter says, yeah, but it was through the work of wicked men, culpable, evil. Did God make them do it? No. Did they want to do what they wanted to do? Yes. Are they culpable for what they did? Yes. Is God culpable for what they did? No. And that's hard to reconcile, isn't it? But again and again we will see it in the scriptures. The Bible holds the two together. God is able to work even through horrific evil, weaving it into his extraordinary plan, and he does so in such a way that he is not tainted by it or accountable for it. Does that make sense? I'm looking confused. That's okay. It is confusing, I'm going to be honest. And so the cross, through the cross, the ultimate extraordinary good came through evil human agency. At Jael's tent, good came through her evil human agency. There's a paradox there. We, we struggle to get our brains around it, and we probably won't this side of eternity. 
Except to know that God can work and does work in, through, and despite horrific evil, even bringing it into his plans and purposes, and yet he did not cause it or do it. He was not tainted by it. Which means that Jael can do these things, and in one sense she is accountable and culpable for them, and yet abuses them in his plans and purposes. We can debate that afterwards. We'll have a beer at some point. Maybe you can explain it to me. The fourth one is what does this all mean for us on Monday? I'm aware this has not been your usual sermon, but an important question for us really is so what? How does this passage, how does Judges 4 shape my Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday? I did read one website that was zooming in on Jail's um, example with five powerful lessons for us. Um, number one was act on the opportunities that God puts in front of you. <laughs> <laughs> number two, Use the tools that you've been given. <laughs> Number three, some things are more important than following rules. Um, I don't think they're very helpful. I'm not going to give you four or five. But, um, it may be an issue as well. If you don't like camping, then you can use this to prove that you shouldn't go camping. Anyway, I'm, I'm not convinced that that's what the author of Judges wants us to take away from this um, from this chapter or indeed from this book. And what does this mean for us tomorrow? There are loads and loads of things that we could say. I want to give you three ways, I think, three ways, that this account in chapter 4 points us ahead to the Lord Jesus Christ. Number one, he is the ruler that we need. Okay, magic. Um, he is the culmination, he is the climax of all the scriptures. And in him, you see, he is the ruler we need. There's kind of a two-pronged leadership, I think, that you see in Judges chapter 4. And you see Deborah, who was a wise ruler, full of wisdom. And you see Barak, who was a brave rescuer. And it seems to me that Jesus did both. He is the culmination. He is the, the crown of the various leadership threads in the Old Testament. He is the true, perfect prophet, priest, and king. They find their unity in him. He comes to um, protect and to provide. He comes to bring us freedom and to bring us safety. He, he goes from the cross to the place of authority wearing the crown. He rescues and he rules. He's a, he's a Deborah Barak kind of combo. Which means I don't know what you've got going on this week or why you're not sleeping, or what's keeping you up, or what's bringing stress, or the events that you would rather fast forward if you could. You know, if you had a, had a kind of TV control of your life, if you could just press fast forward through the hard stuff, you'd rather not do. Well, of course, uh, go for some holidays, that's lovely. Whatever it is, it's financial, it's friendship, it's family, it's employment, it's emotional, it's stuff that's coming up in your diary, it's things that you're dealing with, things you've got inside, it's whatever it is, we have a king whom we can completely trust. He provides, just as wise Deborah prophesied what was to come. So the Lord Jesus is never blindsided by what's coming for us. That thing this week that you wouldn't have imagined would have happened, or whatever it is, that thing that's coming up, he knows about it already. And just as unlikely jail even, breaks God's law, and yet somehow it's weaved into his plans and purposes. He can work in, through, and despite us. 
I'm looking up and I'm getting it wrong. Our actions are always going to be flawed, always shot through with self-promotion, impure motives and foolishness and imperfection. And yet he still weaves our obedience and maybe even our disobedience into his plans and purposes. Extraordinary. It is a hugely encouraging passage, if not a bit strange. That brings us to the second point, that is Jesus is at work. Jesus is at work. And even if we can't see it or we doubt it, he's at work. Now why do I say this? I'm cheating because we've not read chapter 5. We're not going to. But if we read the song of Deborah and Barak, it gives us a number of, in a number of ways, a kind of theological commentary on what we see in chapter 4. So it's the start of EastEnders. Chapter 4 is what's happening in Albert Square, or the Queen Vic, or whatever it is. I've not watched it for 30 years. <laughs> But there are people interacting and chatting, and it's kind of grassroots, it's right down here, doing what they do, life in Albert Square. And chapter 5 is the big picture at the start, it's, it's, it shows us the tents, kind of looking down from above, reflecting on what's going on. Also, in chapter 5, we get something of the big picture of how God is at work, even through the mess and the mire, even in the, the complications, and bringing about his purposes and working out his rule. And I recognise it's a hard thing to say, particularly in a time like this. But God is not in, not out of control. He is still at work. And we've got pandemics, and there are invasions going on. And you're thinking, can I actually even face the BBC app this morning to see what happened last night? And we can trust him. He is good. He is able to work in through and despite the mess. And do we have questions about that? Of course we do. Questions about God's sovereignty and human responsibility? Of course we do. And the Bible feels the tension and the weight of those kinds of questions. It doesn't deny them. But it always says he's still sovereign and he's not out of control. Third one is we need Jesus. Which sounds like that's always the answer, isn't it? But whether we like it or not, However much we can balk at the idea of the Canaanites being removed, or military language, or justice, or gore, <coughs> that, and I recognise we do, you know, the natural story of the Bible is that we are God's enemies. In one sense, we are the Canaanites from one angle. We're the ones who have turned away from the Holy God, who, who deserve God's justice. We, we lose our sense of smell when it comes to the reality of our rebellion. We, we downplay how bad we are, we try to pretend we're fine, and we downplay how good he is, so he wasn't going to mind that much. You know, one of the threads of judges is that God defeats his enemies, he judges his enemies. Why does that naturally leave us? It leaves us in the firing line, in one sense. It leaves us in need of a saviour. One who will deal with not only the kind of rebellious structures of the world or the false ideologies set up against God, but indeed one who will come and deal with our ultimate enemies of sin and suffering and Satan. You know, Jesus came and didn't just deal with the Romans. The Romans were small fry. His scope of rescue was so much bigger than the Romans. He in love for his people, dies on the cross and takes God's justice that we deserve upon himself. And enemies can become friends, and we can know the God whom we were made for. It's not that we move out of the firing line, 
is that God's justice is taken upon his son. It, God takes on flesh and he comes and stands in our place for us. And so judges in one sense pushes ahead, points us ahead to our need for Christ. We will come and deal with God's righteous anger. Terrifying as that may be. But he will deal with it for us. Let's pray. Lord, as we pray at the start, we ask that you would help us from creating you in our image. We know how easy it is to do that. And yet sometimes we just get glimpses of how very different from us you are. Guard us from idolatry of just shaping you into the kind of God that we want you to be. Would we allow you to be the God that you are? And we do thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he was wise like Deborah, brave like Barak, and yet more than that, he came and dealt with the justice that we deserve through his extraordinary love for us. Help us to trust him in a messy and broken and complicated world at the moment, internationally, nationally, locally, in our own lives. Would you draw near to us as we look to you? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.